Hey everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're gonna to be continuing with the Manchester tapes. We're gonna be talking about New Order. So we're gonna be following right after the end of my Joy Division podcast where Joy Division ends and New Order begins. We're gonna be literally jumping right into it after the dissolution of Joy Division. So after Ian Curtis's death, the band decided to continue on with making music. While they were in Joy Division, everyone agreed that if anyone in the band were to leave, that they agreed to not use the Joy Division name. On July 29, 1980, they were still an unnamed band when they debuted at Manchester's Beach Club. Their manager from Joy Division was still their manager in New Order. He's called Rob Gredin, and Rob came up with the name of New Order in an article by The Guardian. He found New Order in that article. So the three of them started rehearsing, and they all took turns deciding who would be on the vocals. They eventually settled on Bernard being the lead singer, as he could do the vocals when he wasn't playing guitar. They definitely decided that they wanted to become a four-piece band again, and they wanted to bring someone in that had great music sensibilities and compatible music tastes. Rob, their manager, suggested that Stephen Morris's girlfriend, Jillian Gilbert, should be in the band. She didn't actually have musical experience per se, but she was invited to join the band in early October 1980, and she played the keyboard and a little bit of guitar, but her main job was keyboardist. Her first performance with the band was at The Squat in Manchester on October 25th, 1980. Their first release as a band was the single Ceremony, and that released in January of 1981. Ceremony was also released as a B-side to their single In a Lonely Place. Both songs were actually Joy Division songs. Those were written towards the end of Ian Curtis's life. Those were some of the last things that they recorded together. But they were re-recorded as New Order songs. Because Ian never actually wrote the lyrics down for Ceremony, and Bernard was having a hard time understanding the lyrics through the bad audio quality on the recording that he was listening to, he had to play the song through a graphic equalizer to guess what the lyrics even were. So that's a bit dodgy, but that's what he had to do. Their debut album, Movement, was recorded at Strawberry Studios in Stockport from April and May 1981. Some of the songs on the album were from when the band was still a three-piece. They were kind of touring a little bit in the U.S., primarily in New York, and they were touring around the U.K. as a three-piece band at the time, before they were even called New Order. And the rest of the songs on Movement were written in about seven months, with Jillian being in the band. Martin Hannett was back on producing the album, and Martin Hannett was their main producer on their other Joy Division albums. It's kind of funny that they brought him back because Bernard and Peter 100% were not happy with how he handled Unknown Pleasures and Closer, so I guess it's kind of just an easy thing to bring someone in that you already know, but they just were not even happy at all genuinely with how he handled movement as well. They just weren't happy about it. Martin didn't stay that long in the group anyway because Martin was in a lawsuit with Factory Records and he had a well-known drug and alcohol problem. So it was just so insufferable. They were not happy, the band at all, to work with him on that. They just brought him in, I think, because they knew of him from before. 
he just kind of fit right in. It was just an easy way to come in there, but they just were so not happy about it. Peter commented that the only good thing to come out of Martin producing movement was that he showed them how to use the mixing board so that they could mix their future albums and singles themselves. They also found it a little bit difficult to write the songs for this album without Ian's keen ear for free-flowing poetic lyrics. The sound on this album was considered to be a transition between their Joy Division sound and who they were initially finding themselves out to be as New Order. So it was that kind of weird transitional kind of period that they were in for this album. In an interview with Fanzine Magazine in 1982, Peter commented, We were confused musically. Our songwriting wasn't coming together. I don't know how we pulled out of that one. I actually liked movement, but I know why nobody else likes it. It was good for the first two and a half minutes, then it dipped. The album cover was again designed by Peter Saville, and Peter Saville had previously worked on the album covers for Joy Division's albums, and he was part of Factory Records, and he would go on to produce all of New Order's album covers. So how movement came together for the album cover is that the top three lines, if you look at the photo, the top three lines on the cover makes an F, and that stands for Factory Records, and then the bottom shape of the album cover makes an L, which is 50 in Roman numerals. So as a whole, this stood for Factory 50, which is what Factory Records stood for. So it was pretty clear that they wanted to say this is New Order from Factory Records without saying that. I know Peter Saville is very specific in how he wants the album covers to look. It was very specific and kind of hidden. He likes to use kind of hidden code in the album covers. So that's kind of what the cover for Movement stood for for him. And Movement was released November 1981 with kind of lukewarm reception. But they were disappointed that the album didn't follow suit with the sound that their singles had brought them. It was rumored at the time that the band considered remixing or even re-recording the whole album because they genuinely were not happy in the moment with how the album sounded because Martin Hannett produced it again. But they were on time and financial restraints, so they just had to put it out. However, the release of their new singles, Everything's Gone Green in 1981 and Temptation in 1982, gained back the favor of the music critics. New Order went to New York again in 1981, and in New York, they were introduced to really different musical scenes like post-disco, freestyle, and electro music. And this was at a time where disco was so big in New York, especially in New York, 100%. If you remember the movie with John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever, that took place in New York. So New York was really the hub for disco music in the 70s. And with the punk craze coming out and with the post-disco coming out in New York, it became a really big epicenter for New Order to look at what was going on in New York and to really assess how they could implement those sounds in their own music. So New York was definitely shedding the over-commercialized disco scene and they were creating sub-genres that were more electro and R&B based. They were also, New Order was also inspired by Italo disco music at the time. And so at this point in time too, New Order and Factory Records are are very much so one and the same. The Hacienda Club in Manchester 
was owned by Factory Records and it was also founded by New Order. But Peter Hook was mainly the one I think that was fronting the Hacienda a bit more from the band. And the Hacienda opened in May 1982. The opening of the Hacienda was marked by a 23-minute long song from New Order entitled Prime 586. And this song here would be an early version of the rhythm elements that would go on to be used in their hit songs Blue Monday and Ultraviolence. So this is kind of where New Order, they released their album and they're now starting to take shape just a little bit. They're starting to be molded by these new subgenres that they were hearing in New York and they were very influenced by that. And then the Hacienda came about and then they are just very, very deep into this disco dance electro music and this is where they come in with their second album power corruption and lies and people think that this is their best album ever so power corruption and lies was recorded at britannia rose studios in islington and it was recorded from october to november of 1982 they definitely had a grasp on the sound that they wanted to showcase and they utilized heavy use of synths on this album It felt like they had finally become New Order and they really knew at this point in time what direction they wanted to go in. Steven had remarked that Joy Division fans hated this album because obviously it was so different in sound to the gloomy and kind of gothic, if you will, sound of Joy Division and this was so happy and upbeat and different. But this was when he knew that New Order was really onto something good with their music when Joy Division fans hated this album. So it was good that they had finally separated themselves from the Joy Division sound. Steven also remarked that the band were definitely on the influence of Acid when they recorded the album. And I think now that I know that fact and you listen to the album back, oh, you can definitely hear that Acid influence for sure. These recording sessions in general were so much happier. It was just a lot more fun and upbeat for the band and for the crew as well. It was just a really different atmosphere from anything else that they had ever worked on. They really had the freedom to mess around with new recording techniques. They were just given the total freedom by Factory Records to do whatever they wanted to do because New Order was really the band on Factory Records label that was heavily making them a lot of money and... They were really heavily promoting New Order 100%. Steven also mentioned that the use of these electric drums were quite frustrating for him because he really wanted to keep using the organic drum sound on his drum kit, but because they were switching into a bit more of an electro-synthesized music sound that Steven had to like be a bit more mathematical with his timing of the drums and doing the buttons for the drums and the different percussion sounds, and so it was a lot more technical than it was organic for him but that was really all of Steven's gripes but he had a good time on the album everyone did Peter Saville again created the album cover he had the idea of using a color-based code on the cover to represent the band's name and the album title without actually writing them on the cover itself so if you can picture in your mind what this album cover looks like, you know, it's the basket of roses on the album cover. But on the top right hand corner, you'll see like a bunch of different colored squares. That is the code that he's talking about. He put that into some kind of machine, a binary code machine. Peter Saville in general was really not a fan of putting the band name and the album name on the album cover anywhere because he found that that was quite patronizing to 
any fans or audience members that wanted to buy the record. Like, you don't need to put New Order, Power Corruption, and Lies on the cover. So that's what I like about Peter Saville's artwork in general. It's very kind of differently thought out. The cover itself is a reproduction of a painting called A Basket of Roses. It's by a French artist, Henri Latour. I'm sure I did not say that right. Um, this painting was a part of London's National Gallery. Peter originally wanted to use a portrait of a dark prince to represent the Machiavellian theme of the title, but he couldn't really find a painting that would suit what he was looking for. So when he went to the gallery one day, he picked up a postcard that had the image of the basket of roses on it. Peter's girlfriend was with him at the time, and she commented mockingly if he would use that as the album cover, and he thought, wow, that's actually a great idea. Yeah, I am. So he thought that the flowers suggested the means by which power, corruption, and lies infiltrate our lives. They're seductive. And I like that because that album cover is very simple, but also I totally get what he's saying by which power, corruption, and lies are very seductive to the everyday human being. And so when you put roses on the front, roses are also quite seductive and romantic. So it's so cool how he just kind of comes full circle on the ideas of his album covers and he makes it come to life in such a perfect way. Tony Wilson of Factory Records commented that the gallery at first refused the band to use the painting on their album cover. One day on the phone with the gallery, Tony recalled saying that the people of Britain wanted the image to be used and the gallery decided to make an exception after hearing that, so Tony had a way with words, apparently. So now I really wanted to get into the making of Blue Monday, because Blue Monday, I think, really is the tune that people know them by. It's their most popular tune, 100%. So I just wanted to go a bit deep and explain the backstory of how Blue Monday came about. So before the album was released, Blue Monday was not even a single on the album. It was just a random song that they had come up with. So Blue Monday was released on March 7th, 1983. It was composed on a prototype sequencer in binary code. So this was really the first song I think that I can think of in music history at this time that was mainly composed on this binary code, this kind of sequencer, this very kind of technologically based thing within music. It's been heralded as a synth pop classic. The drum track that kicks off the song was created on a DMX drum machine and then Jillian's keyboard follows on the track. Um, Jillian had to input all of her keyboard parts into this binary code machine but because she forgot to input a single note in the sequencer her part was out of sync with the beat. So that just goes to show that the simplest of mistakes, human error, the simplest of human error mistakes can be forever put in there. And then if you mess up, you got to do the whole thing over again. So a piece of equipment that they bought for this song was an early sample of an emulator one. And they used it to grab different samples of songs and they even recorded some thunder that was happening just to kind of practice with it to get a feel for this technology because they were not aware of this technology and they didn't know how to use it because it was quite new and so they were figuring out how to use it and a funny story that Jillian mentioned was that Bernard and Stephen had apparently figured out how to use this machine by spending hours recording farts. 
I know some of you out there will find that really funny, so I just wanted to put that in there. So Blue Monday doesn't really follow a typical verse-chorus-verse layout, which makes the song stand out a lot more than it already does. The band said that they wrote the song as a response to the fact that their fans were upset that they never performed encores at their shows. The song was initially set up in a way that it allowed them to return to the stage, press play on a synthesizer, and then leave the stage so that the song would just play out and it's like, all right, you want an encore? All right, press one button and the song comes out. Honestly, as the song kept evolving over time, the band started to really enjoy the outcome of the song. They were like, okay, this is something that we could actually do. But the thing about Blue Monday is when they played this song, I believe it was on top of the pops. It just was a disaster because this is such, again, a technological tune. It's very much so heavily dependent on pressing buttons at the right time and heavy machinery and things like that. And so playing it live was so difficult at this time. Blue Monday was inspired by quite a few songs and quite a few things that you guys might find really interesting, like I never knew. So notably, they were inspired by Donna Summer's song, Our Love. Other parts of the song drew inspiration from an Italo disco band called Klein and MBO and their tune, Dirty Talk. The bass line in particular was inspired by Sylvester's You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, and it was also heavily inspired from a 1965 Clint Eastwood movie, A Few Dollars More. So when you hear that, kind of like, um, in the movie, like he saw that in the movie and he was like, oh my God, that's amazing. So when you actually go watch the movie or find clips on YouTube and you hear it, it's so obvious that that's where that comes from. And then they also were inspired by the Kraftwerk and their song Uranium. So those are the few songs that they were heavily inspired by and they took bits and pieces of those and they meshed it together. The title for Blue Monday was actually inspired by a Kurt Vonnegut drawing of a bomb that had Goodbye Blue Monday written on it. Even though this song was a massive hit upon release, Factory Records nearly lost money on each sale because the single's record sleeve was die cut with a silver inner sleeve. And silver at the time was considered a very expensive color to print. So every time they had to print the inner sleeve with the silver, it would just come out of their pocket. I think, though, the sales that came about from Blue Monday as a single, I think, put the money back in their pocket. But they almost lost all of their money just from putting that out there initially. Blue Monday charted twice on the charts, once at number 12 and then later on at number 9. Blue Monday became the best-selling 12-inch single of all time in the UK history. And that is... All I gotta say on Blue Monday, it's quite an awesome song. If you've never heard it, definitely listen to it. And so then, followed up, Power, Corruption, and Lies was released on May the 2nd, 1983. Critics and fans were so elated with the sound of this album. They thought, yes, New Order finally got it right. It sounds awesome. They gave very positive reviews of the album. And it's still, again, considered one of their best, if not their best album that they've ever put out today. In August of that year, the band put out the single Confusion, which officially solidified the band's dance and electro footprint on the music scene as a whole. So they were heavily influencing the sound of that time with just that song alone, but the album too. 
So now I'm going to kind of skim through their next few albums because there's not a whole lot of strong information about these albums that I really feel like I want to dive deep into. I'm just going to give a bit of background. So Low Life was their follow-up album to Power, Corruption, and Lies. This was recorded at Jam Studios and Britannia Row Studios in 1984. By this time, they had fully transformed from their earlier post-punk sounds into their full-on dance, rock, and electro sound. It's definitely considered some of their strongest work. They released the 12-inch version of their album single, The Perfect Kiss, and their other single, Subculture, which was released as a remix before the album's release. And Low Life was released on May 13, 1985. It definitely came about as very positive to the press and to the fans. It was very, very well received. It went to number seven on the UK album charts. And then in February the following year, their song Shell Shock was used in the soundtrack for the popular John Hughes movie Pretty in Pink starring Molly Ringwald. If you don't know of that movie, or if you don't even know about John Hughes as a director, I just want to briefly mention really quick, like, the importance of John Hughes and his impact on movies and culture in the time of the 80s in America, um, specifically in America, because this is where a lot of teens in high school in the 80s, they were watching his movies, which were teen movies. Like, you got Sixteen Candles, you got The Breakfast Club, you got Pretty in Pink, you got all these other movies that he's done, and Molly Ringwald is a huge actress in the time in these movies, and I'm telling you, the impact of the songs on the soundtracks that he would come out with, they were huge and they were playing in the clubs and in the high schools and the record stores everywhere. So when John Hughes used that song of theirs in the movie, it kind of blew up and it kind of made New Order very, very even more so famous than they already had been with Blue Monday. Later on that year, in the summertime, New Order headlined at Manchester's Festival of Tenth Summer at the Convention Complex. They performed with bands like The Smiths, The Fall, and A Certain Ratio, and these are all other Manchester bands that made it big. And this goes to show Manchester bands at this time, they're really coming through. So now their follow-up album, Brotherhood, was recorded at studios in London, Dublin, and Liverpool during 1986. The two sides of the album was split between post-punk and electronic, blending the two together. The album featured their really big hit, Bizarre Love Triangle, which helped gain huge notoriety as well in America. It was the only track on the album to be released as a single. Brotherhood was officially released on September the 29th, 1986. It did a good job of marrying the synth breakbeat with the guitar effects from Low Life, and it received decent reviews. So now we're following up with their album, Substance. While New Order toured Brotherhood in the summer of 1983 with Echo and the Bunnymen, the band released their compilation album, Substance. And I had mentioned before in my Joy Division episode that Joy Division also released a compilation album around this time as well called Substance. So this was kind of a planned move, like they planned to release these compilation albums around the same time, both called Substance. So on this compilation album, they featured a new single called True Faith, which went to number four on the UK singles chart. True Faith would also chart very high in the US as well. A music video for the song was made and it was featured on MTV and it was on heavy rotation and it was a huge hit with American audiences too. It's almost like once you make it big on MTV, then you know that you've made it with the American audiences 100%. 
In December 1987, they released a new single called Touched by the Hand of God, in which a subsequent music video for it was directed by Catherine Bigelow. And some of you might know that name. Catherine Bigelow would go on to direct the famous movie Point Break with Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. So now we're kind of getting into the middle of their discography with their album Technique. Technique was where we begin to see a bit more of a diversion from their synth work and into more of a dance kind of house realm. New Order at this time was heavily inspired by the Ibiza house sounds, which were making its way into the Hacienda. So this Ibiza house sound, it's a specific kind of dance music that blends electro with DJ-led dance music that was very popular in Ibiza at the time. They actually recorded part of Technique in 1988 at Mediterranean Studios in Ibiza, right in the heart of that expansive dance music scene. Like they were actually in the thick of it, getting inspired by it all around them. Peter was actually very insistent that they record the album in Ibiza after not wanting to record in the same kind of dreary, damp, dark London studios anymore. He just wanted a bit of change in scenery. So while Ibiza was also taking on this kind of movement, London also had an experimenting dance wave of its own with acid being readily available to everybody. So London was also having its moment as well with this music. And in particular, the London-based club, The Shoom, was at the epicenter for this craze in particular. They definitely incorporated elements of acid house and dance rock on this album. So this is where their music gets a bit more experimental with their sounds. This definitely, though, would be the band's last album being released under Factory Records, as unfortunately, the label would declare bankruptcy in 1992. So to kind of understand a bit more about this bankruptcy, Factory Records were mainly taking on Manchester-based bands. Um, One of these bands is the Happy Mondays. And the Happy Mondays made it big with a couple of their songs like um, Step On and a few others. So Happy Mondays were a big face as well for Factory Records. Unfortunately, the Happy Mondays put out their album, Yes Please, and this was a huge failure for Factory Records. It made them like zero money. In fact, it made them go into bankruptcy because of that album. Unfortunately, it just kind of became a really bad scene at that time. But I just wanted to explain a bit more that, you know, Factory Records didn't really have strong contracts with a lot of their bands. And so if an album flopped, it would reflect directly on the label, obviously, but on them too, because they were primarily an indie label. Also, Factory Records was directly tied to the Hacienda, which was also not making money at the time, but I'm kind of going a bit too far in there. But yeah, I just wanted to give that bit of backstory. So the band spent four months in Ibiza and they had about 20% of the album finished. At this point in time, I think the band was just kind of getting overwhelmed by everything that they were seeing and experiencing in Ibiza. So they decided to take a total 180 and finish the album in Peter Gabriel's own studio called Real World Studios down in Wiltshire, England. And I have to say, I've looked up photos of this studio. It is like it is like a fairy tale down there. It's a beautiful house in this kind of really nice foresty kind of meadowy kind of area. It's beautiful. 
The band remarked that the album had captured that perfect summer vibe that they were hoping that they would get. Music videos for the album's three singles were made to also help promote the album as well, so this album definitely was a really big success for them. The album was released on January 30th, 1989. Even though this had a summer vibe to it, it was released in the middle of winter. But to be fair, it did very well on the charts. It went to number one. And this was their first album to land number one ever. So you knew that they did it right with this album just from the get-go. They really for sure, though, hit the nail on the head with this sound in particular. Like they really, really did it. The summer of 89 was marked with a tour of the album with supporting acts from Public Image Limited, which was Johnny Rotten's newly formed band after the Sex Pistols had dissolved. And they toured this album across the U.S. and Canada. It was also around this time that some of the band members wanted to go about their separate ways musically and to kind of get a feel for their own music and their own musical projects. Bernard started the band Electronic with Johnny Marr, and Peter formed the band Revenge at the time. In 1990, New Order recorded the official song of the England's national football team's 1990 World Cup campaign called World in Motion. The song was co-written by comedian Keith Allen, and it became the band's only number one UK hit in terms of a single that they ever did. It was originally going to be just named E for England, but the Football Association caught on and they didn't want that title because they realized E for England was a reference to ecstasy, which was being heavily used and passed around at the time. So they were like, hell no, you cannot put E for England in this and reference ecstasy. Are you crazy? In 1991, this is really strange. I never saw this coming. In 1991, John Denver filed a lawsuit against New Order, alleging that the guitar break in the song Run was way too similar to his song Leaving on a Jet Plane. The suit was settled out of court, and the song has since been credited as New Order and John Denver. That is so bizarre. So now at this point in time in New Order's history, this is where things start to crumble. And this will definitely follow through with the beginning of the bankruptcy from Factory Records on their previous albums. Unfortunately, their sixth album, Republic, was overshadowed by the ultimate collapse of Factory Records. And like I mentioned before, right? New Order did not have a contract with Factory, although I guess you could think that that would be strange that they wouldn't have a contract. Apparently, this was common practice at Factory Records in particular. So because of them not having a contract with Factory, the band themselves legally owned their own music, so it made it easier for them to transition to another label if they wanted to. Tony Wilson cited that because Factory didn't legally own the band's music, that this was the reason that London Records attempted to buy Factory in 1992, but that fell through. So the production of Republic and the release of Republic, everything around this album was doomed from the start because the band felt forced to make this album to save Factory Records and the Hacienda, and both were losing a lot of money. In fact, they were not making any money at all. 
They were told that if they didn't make this album, that they would be ruined financially because they had guaranteed loans for Factory. And so Tony Wilson is putting this pressure on New Order to come out with this album, like to come out with basically a number one selling album to save Factory Records and to save the Hacienda. Because if they didn't, Factory would go out of business and they would all lose their money and it would all be um, New Order's fault kind of thing, if you will. But unfortunately, it was just too late. Factory Records totally dissolved at that point in time. And so New Order went over to London Records. Republic was recorded in 1992 at Peter Gabriel's studio and at the R.A.K. studios. Again, just the energy in these recording sessions were so bad because they had to come up with a way like, okay, how do we come up with an album that will save factory records and will save the Hacienda and so that we don't lose money? But there was no way around the fighting that was going to happen within the band. This was where the start of Peter and Bernard's really tumultuous relationship started to take form. They were arguing all the time about where the music should go and the direction of the music and just literally about everything. They were at each other's necks all the time and it was a really toxic environment. However, though, even though Factory Records dissolved, the album went to number one on the UK charts. It was released on May 3rd, 1993. So it's just a really funny juxtaposition that Republic was supposed to be the album that saved Factory. It went to number one, but it was just way too late at that point in time. Factory had completely dissolved and there was nothing that they could do about it. The song that was the title track to the album called Regret became the band's highest charting single in the U.S., So the toxicity never really stopped with the band. After the release of Republic, the band just really wanted to take a break and focus on their other side projects and to not be concerned with recording music for a while. Steven and Jillian had come out with a band together called The Other Two, and their debut album was released in 1993 as well. Peter went on to form his own band called Monaco that formed in 1995. He played the bass, the keyboard, and he sang on the album. Monaco released two albums, and their song, What Do You Want From Me, went on to become a really big hit on the alternative radio in 1997. So New Order also put out another compilation album in 1994. It featured all of the band's singles since the Substance album, and it had a few extra tracks and remixes in it. After a few years apart, the band eventually did get back together in 1998 at the suggestion of their manager, Rob Gredden. I'm sure he was like, you guys got to get together. It's been five years. You got to record something here. Bernard has said that before they did get back together officially, that they were to hold a meeting. And at this meeting, he said if anyone had any grudges to bear, that they get it all out in the open before they even consider joining forces. Um, They had a second meeting, and at that point, they all agreed to continue playing and touring, and they were cool about it for a moment, and then it fell apart not long after. It was at this time that they decided to start playing Joy Division songs at their concerts for the first time since New Order's inception in the early 80s. So that was huge. They finally were starting to play Joy Division songs at their shows. So now they're back together and now they're starting to think about new material for a future album. 
they eventually went back into the studios from the years 2000 to 2001 to record their comeback album, Get Ready, and that is an aptly named comeback album. The album definitely marked the turnaround of their sound to bring back more of the guitar rock focused sound that they had before rather than focusing on their dance music that made them really popular. So this album was so different because they really wanted to get back into their grassroots rock kind of sound that they initially had in the first place. They felt like they had left their guitar sound on the back burner for way too long and lost touch with it for many years of putting out dance albums. Get Ready was actually dedicated to Rob Gretton, who had died in 1999, and it was released on August the 21st, 2001, to kind of mixed reviews. Um, it got kind of average scores from music publications. It landed decently in the UK charts, but it didn't really quench the thirst for people wanting New Order back because it was a total 180. They actually did go on tour in 2001 to tour the album alongside the Smashing Pumpkins because Billy Corgan had played guitar and sang backup vocals on the album songs Turn My Way. Weirdly enough, too, like this whole time they were touring with like all these other bands like the Smiths and Echo and the Bunnymen and all these other electro bands. And now they're touring with Smashing Pumpkins. That goes to show the big turnaround of this album 100%. This was at a time, too, where Jillian had declined to go on tour that year as she wanted to look after her and Stephen's children at home. Stephen and Jillian are married, by the way, and so Jillian just decided she didn't want to go on tour and she wanted to spend time with her children. So New Order was like, all right, and they brought on Phil Cunningham as her live replacement. Now, this is where, in time, in 2002, the film 24-Hour Party People was made, and it was made to portray the beginning of Factory Records and the Hacienda Club and its subsequent downfall. This was seen through the eyes of Tony Wilson, who was played by Steve Coogan. And I love Steve Coogan. I saw some of the movie before I finished my outline for this podcast episode. It was really funny. He, Steve Coogan is just so funny, and he plays the part really well. That movie really does a good job of portraying a bit of comedy but also portraying some real things that happened in that time. There were actually cameos by actual members of New Order, The Fall, and The Happy Mondays that lent an air of legitimacy to the story that the movie was portraying. So now their eighth album, Waiting for the Siren's Call, was the first album where they worked with Phil Cunningham, who took over in Jillian's stead but he comes on to be on this album and in future New Order albums. While recording this album from 2003 to 2004, they also recorded some tracks that were intended to be on the next album, but they were shelved when Peter Hook left the band in 2007. Promotional posters for this album too were actually really pivotal for music history at that time because it was the first time that any band would utilize what's called hypertag technology. You can kind of think of it as a QR code where people who saw these promo posters around the city, they would put their phone up to it and they would get instant downloads of free content like ringtones and wallpapers and tracks of this album. So that's really, really unique. I don't think I've ever seen that outside just walking around that a band would put out promo posters for the album 
with these kind of QR codes. That is so different and unique. Waiting for the Sirens Call was released on March 28, 2005, and it went to number five on the UK album charts. So it did pretty decent. At the 2005 NME Awards, New Order and Joy Division both received the awards for Godlike Geniuses. And also what was quite big for them was in 2006, the album track Guilt is a Useless Emotion was nominated for a Grammy in the Best Dance Recording category. So that is really cool. But unfortunately, the happiness doesn't last for too long because this is where things start to falter again with Peter and Bernard. They just don't have a great relationship at all. It's just they cannot work together at this time. One of the initial points of contention for Peter was that in 2006, they were going on a few sporadic tours here and there around the UK, Brazil, Argentina, and Peter was just fed up with it. He suggested that they stop touring because it was taking away from them recording their music and it just became a bit too much for them. Um, but the band didn't want to stop touring. In a radio interview in 2007, Peter had remarked that him and Bernard were no longer working together. He also went on this radio interview to talk about the debut album of the newly formed band Satellite Party. And this is a combo I never saw coming in a million years. Satellite Party features Peter and Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction. So Perry is the singer of Jane's Addiction. I could not imagine in my life those two ever combining forces together. It seems a bit weird. And I think my points of contention are correct because the album did so bad on the charts. It went to number 91 on the Billboard 200. I mean, not horrible, but it was really at the low end for sure. And they only sold 8,000 copies of their debut album. That is just so bad. Yikes. I haven't listened to the album, but after reading these facts, I'm quite afraid to listen to it. But that just goes to show that like Peter was done and he was doing other projects at this time. By 2008, officially, Peter was totally done with the band. He's He was gone. He left. He had felt like he wanted different things for the band and that he thought the music wasn't as interesting anymore, and for some time, he had dealt with his frustrations in the band through alcohol, and this was starting to affect him really badly in a mental way. So he couldn't deal with it anymore. He had to leave, and he had to get out. He had to stop the arguing with Bernard, and it was just way too much for him. After this break from New Order, Peter joined forces with bassist Manny of the Stone Roses, and bassist Andy Rourke of the Smiths. You have a band with three bassists in it. I think that's so overkill, don't you think? They formed a band called, get it, Free Bass. Free Bass. Just the, the pun of that is so funny. And together they released an album called It's a Beautiful Life. It was released on Peter's own Hacienda label, but the band broke up before the album was even released in 2010. And weirdly enough, it took five years for this album to be completed. I mean, it just makes no sense to me. How can you even have three bassists in one band? That is so overkill. That is so weird. Like, that is one of the weirdest facts that I've learned about this. Like, what? 
But the album received very mixed reviews. People were like, I don't get this. This is dumb. (laughs) So they just weren't really keen about the album as a whole. So in February of 2010, Peter opened up a new club in live venue in Manchester called Factory 251. The club is situated in the old offices of Factory Records, and Factory 251 is still there today. I looked on the website before just to get kind of a view of what it looked like and stuff like that. It's still there. So he's running that, and he seems to be doing pretty well with Factory 251. On the 30th anniversary of Ian Curtis's death, Peter played with his band called The Light. They performed a set of Joy Division songs playing the entirety of Unknown Pleasures. And fans were digging it, but when the rest of New Order heard that he was doing this, they were so not happy about it. New Order went on in 2011 to perform a few live shows, obviously without Peter involved, but they did bring Jillian back on and they continued to tour throughout 2012. So Peter was doing his own thing. New Order were doing their own thing. They were fine doing things separately, but later on down the line, it would not stop there with the animosity. It's coming. It's coming. There's a lot of respite and a lot of animosity coming later, but we're just hitting the iceberg just a little bit. So New Order's ninth album was called Lost Sirens, and this was released on January the 11th, 2013. The album was delayed by a few months due to a copyright dispute with Peter Hook, because on those songs that they had recorded during those sessions for their previous album, Peter was there and he was playing bass on it. So now that Peter wasn't in the band, now there was a point of contention where there was a copyright issue So there was a delay in that because they were trying to figure that out. But the album came out and I think it did pretty well, not too bad. And then their last album, Music Complete, which is their most current album, it was released on September 10th, 2015. This is their 10th album. And this was their first album that they had without Peter on it completely. It was produced mostly by the band themselves, and on the charts, it did pretty okay and not that bad. Now we're getting on to a huge lawsuit that happened within New Order in these recent years. This is so crazy to me. In November of 2015, Peter had made a claim that New Order owed him millions of pounds in unpaid royalties since his split from the band in 2007. New Order bit back and said that they were really annoyed that Peter had gone on to play Joy Division songs with his band The Light, that he trademarked the name of the Hacienda nightclub for himself, and that he was focusing on a DJ career, which now... Let me tell you about his DJ career. That is one of the funniest things that I learned about this. Since his break, but even in the early 2000s before his official break from New Order, Peter was delving in DJing. And at the time when MySpace came about in the mid-2000s, he had a MySpace page. And people knew that he was DJing because he was promoting it. Um, and you know, he was at all these clubs around Manchester and things. So he was doing a lot of DJing gigs, but the funniest thing was this all came out to be fake because people caught him playing pre-made mixes on a CD. And what's mind blowing 
He was pretending to mime on the decks, but he had pre-made mixes on in the background. And that is the funniest thing. And we know this because he wrote a blog on his MySpace saying, this is all confirmed. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> like, I have to laugh. How stupid is that? I don't know at this point if he is still DJing and at this point in time in 2015 with this lawsuit, if he was genuinely DJing, but that is a fact that he was faking his DJing career. So in this lawsuit process, apparently it was revealed that Bernard, Stephen, and Jillian had set up a new company without Peter's knowledge, and this company brought in 7.8 million pounds in the four years that it was up and running. Peter claimed that he only received a fraction of that money and that he should be entitled to that money. The three members of New Order claimed that they treated Peter fairly and that his stake in the royalties was considered reasonable. The judge in this case ruled that there was at least some reasonable prospect of Peter proving that he wasn't getting the money that he should have been earning. The judge urged both parties that they come to some kind of settlement out of court instead of spending more legal fees trying to go at each other's necks. And so in 2017, that's just what they do. They reached an undisclosed settlement out of court. That was probably the smartest move because, yeah, I mean, you don't want to go down the Smiths route where they literally were in the hole on that one with the money that they had to pay back in royalties. It was crazy. New Order came out with a statement after the settlement, and this statement reads, The disputes were based upon Hook's use of various New Order and Joy Division assets on merchandising and in the promotion of shows by his new band, and the amount of money he receives from the use of the name New Order by his former colleagues since 2011. The Joy Division and New Order names mean a great deal to so many of the fans, and the band felt it was important to protect the legacy. With these issues now dealt with, Bernard, Stephen, and Jillian can continue to do what they do best, make music and perform live. And so that's kind of where we leave off. There's been nothing recently about them making any new music. It's just kind of been kind of somewhat silent, if you will. Peter had made a comment as recent as 2020 about whether he would join back with New Order someday, and he has continued to remain hopeful that one day he will be back in the band and that they'll let him back in and that they'll hash things out. Um, I hope one day that that is to be true, but yeah, he remains hopeful and never say never kind of situation. Peter has been having auctions these last few years, selling some of New Order stuff, selling some of his New Order things, and selling some of Joy Division's items. So in 2019, on his first auction, he sold some New Order and Joy Division items. Now, one of these items in particular were the letters that Ian Curtis wrote to Anique Honoré. Anique Honoré was Ian Curtis's lover, for a lack of better word. Um, you know, he loved her and he was married to his wife, Deborah, and he would write love letters to her and open up to her about things going on in his life and mentally. And Peter was going to put these letters up for sale. New Order totally scolded him. They did not want him to sell these letters because they thought 
it's a private conversation between Ian and Anique. Just let it be. And so with all this backlash from the public and from New Order, Peter ended up withdrawing the letters from the auction before it actually went underway. So it is good that he took them out of the auction, but he still intended initially to put them up for auction. Most recently, as of literally like right now, Peter is again auctioning off some of his New Order and Joy Division items. And I went on the website, I went about looking, I'll give a bit of information if you want to check that out. Some of these items include the legal papers from his lawsuit with New Order. The box of those legal papers is going for 600,000 pounds. He's also selling the Enemy Award, and he has a lot of guitars, rare vinyls, and artwork that are also up for auction. So these are on the Omega Auctions website right now, but they're also having a full exhibition for the items that will be held in October this year from the 4th to the 8th. As of very recently, New Order has started up touring again after 18 months of inactivity, obviously because of what the world is going through right now, so they're starting to tour back up again. They just had a show, actually, at Manchester's Heaton Park on the 10th of September, and they plan tour dates for next year in the fall in the U.S. primarily, where the Pet Shop Boys will be co-headlining with them. So if you're in the U.S. and you want to see New Order and Pet Shop Boys, definitely check them out on their tour dates on their website. Get yourself a ticket if you want them. They're very expensive. I looked them up already. It's like, whew, a few hundred dollars just for one ticket. It's like, oh my God. But hey, if you love them enough and you want to see them, they're coming next year, fall 2022 in the U.S. Go ahead and buy your tickets if you want them. But ladies and gentlemen, that is basically the rundown of New Order fully complete. That is where we leave it off. There's nothing more to talk about. There hasn't been any new music coming out. Nothing. Thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, I hope that you've learned something that you haven't learned before. I'll be coming back next Wednesday for a new episode in the Manchester Tapes. I hope you guys have a great day and I'll see you guys next time. Bye guys.